It's so good for us to be able to come together tonight, as has already been mentioned, a little bit of dreariness, at least in the mind of some, with regard to the weather. But nonetheless, we've been blessed with life, with health, and that things are as well with us as they are, to be able to come together and enjoy a powerful opportunity of worshiping the great God that made us, and indeed that things are as well with each of us as, as in fact they are. On one occasion, Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You and I as Christians enjoy the most prolific life of any upon earth. Sometimes we can become of the mindset to pay great honor and homage and respect and attention to movie stars or politicians or others, but no life upon earth can compare to the life in Jesus. And tonight, as Jesus has offered unto us that, I invite you to look at the sixth installment in our series of lessons involving the church. Throughout this series, our thrust and our idea has been to gain a deeper understanding of the church. Our goal has been to appreciate that grandest institution the mind of man has ever attempted to appreciate. In these six lessons, some of the things we've seen have been these. Just to briefly review, we learn that the church is the kingdom of God, that it is the singular uniform body of Christ, and as such, it is no denomination. Furthermore, we can appreciate, at least in the lessons at the end of the day last Lord's Day as well as this morning, that there are specified characteristics that that body must agree to or must be described by its name the place it began, the particular time that it began, and the person who was its builder. To consider all of them, we have put together an impressive listing from the Word of God, some features of that body. But it would be perhaps an opportune time to ask the question that is the title of the lesson tonight. The one that asks us, is the church a denomination? Is the church a denomination? We have already touched upon that a little bit briefly, but I would submit to you that we each probably have been in circumstances and positions in which a deeper appreciation of that question might be in order. And so tonight, let's devote the remainder of our time to not only seeking to understand the character of denomination, but also to appreciate or contrast the Lord's church as it relates to it. To do that, we must begin by asking again, what is a denomination? And to do that, we'll have to then, with now what we know about the church, more fully contrast them. And so let us begin by perhaps asking the following. Consider a conversation that took place between a couple of individuals. No doubt we each have been to one extent or another in the following situation. As you ride on an airplane, or maybe a ship, or take a train ride, or maybe just in the course of your daily work at, at the workplace. A conversation involving religion takes place. The person asks, are you a Christian? Will you very proudly and also with a great deal of confidence assert that yes, I am a Christian? And almost invariably, the next question, the next element out of the person's mouth is, to what denomination do you belong? At this point, one might well involve or consider a number of potential answers, but suppose you say, I am a member of the Church of Christ. Though there is no untruth whatsoever in that affirmation, in that statement, 
Nonetheless, that person with whom you have been speaking is left with a definite impression that the Church of Christ is a denomination. However, suppose you answer differently with a point of view toward trying to curtail that appreciation or understanding on their part. Suppose, on the other hand, you simply say, I belong to no denomination. At that point, likely the person with whom you're speaking will be a bit confused because notice they have asked if you're a Christian, you've said yes. They now ask, to what denomination do you belong? And you say, I belong to no denomination. Probably the expression on their face will indicate that they have a bit of uncertainty, a bit of confusion, and certainly some misunderstanding. Suppose, though, they answer, well, maybe you misunderstand. To what is your religious affiliation? Well, again, you say, I have no religious affiliation. I am a Christian, a member of the Church of Christ. If you have been in circumstances like that, you will know that that conversation could go on for quite some time. And all the while, the ultimate matter is not fully resolved. May I submit to you that the critical problem and the element that is the major feature of this is the following. The world tends to think of Christianity only, only on the basis of denominationalism. They can conceive of it no other way. They have never pondered or thought of it from any other angle, any other perspective, than to consider it in the idea of denominationalism. And therein lies the problem. Tonight, though, let us in fact consider from the Word of God some issues that I believe, if presented to a person, probably might well cause them to think very seriously and to perhaps see this from an angle that they have never seen it before. The word denomination. That word means to name or to call. It is used to describe one member of a class, whatever one happens to be referencing. For instance, if you were to take a $100 bill into your favorite bank in Putnam County, and as such you say, I would like this exchanged in denominations of fives, tens, and twenties, the teller would know exactly what is meant. It is meant that it is desired to express the same value of that money, not in one bill of $100, but in a number of bills, all of which are of specific rank in the monetary system recognized in our land. There is nothing demeaning. They're all of the same value or type class. They're all types of money. But when that idea is expressed concerning religious bodies, it has a similar context. In the mind of the denominational world, it is used to identify or describe or name or call various bodies which in their mind are all of equal value, of equal rank. And thus when that person asks, to what denomination do you belong, it is inconceivable, at least for most, to think that you're a Christian but yet not a part of any denomination. But let us turn back the clock to the first century. What state of affairs prevailed as you and I read the 27 books of the New Testament? It goes without saying that there were no denominations in the first century era. None. One will read the 27 books of the New Testament, all 260 chapters, every single one of the 7,957 New Testament verses, and not one single denomination is mentioned. 
Not one is even alluded to. Not one is even referenced. And the reason is simple. The oldest denomination began less than 500 years ago. From the timetable of biblical Christianity, we understand the New Testament in the day of Christ was 2,000 years ago. And hence, every denomination known to man began over 15 centuries this side of the New Testament era. 15 centuries, 1,500 years were removed from the time of our Lord and those inspired apostles until the establishment of the first of the denominations. That places us in an interesting situation, doesn't it? We have just learned that there were no denominations at the time of the New Testament writing. But there was a church. That part cannot be debated. We notice in Acts chapter 2, as we learned this morning, the blessed church began. It was in existence. The Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved, Acts 2.47. And those precious brethren in Colossae, of them Paul wrote and said that it is none other than God who's translated you out of this world of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. The Colossians were members of the church. Thus, we are now in the following position. The church existed, but denominations didn't. It thus is clearly possible for there to be the recognized by heaven church, but there be no denominations. The Bible attests to that fact, doesn't it? But to say that is then to say the following. Could what prevailed then prevail now? Could it be possible that a person could be a member of the church recognized in heaven and yet be a part of no denomination? It was true in the first century. We've just noted it. Could it still be true today? Let's ask that a different way. Could it be possible that if a person heard the message those first century people heard, could it be possible that that person upon hearing that believed exactly what they believed? And could finally it be possible for a person today to respond to that message exactly the way that they did and become today exactly what they became? For if that's true and if that's possible, a person would be a part of the church recognized and blessed by heaven but would not be a part of any known denomination. Is that possible? If we do today what they did then, would we become today what they became then? The answer speaks for itself, doesn't it? Of course we would. And yet they were members of no denomination. They were simply Christians, members of the blood-bought body of Christ. And the same would be true of you and me today. Thus we have learned something fundamentally vital. That church recognized and blessed by heaven never was a denomination. It's not as though it was one among a class of many. It stood alone, time-tested, and eternal in character. It never was a denomination, and it is not still today. To say all that is then to say that we are prepared to answer very fully that question. Is it possible then to hear, believe, and respond today as they did then and become members only of the church and nothing more? Absolutely it is. Consider some of these texts with me that challenge our thinking in that very line. The key issue surrounds doctrine. The key element and the key idea surrounds the notion of faith. Notice with me the two verses found in the sixth chapter of the book of Galatians. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, 
we read this interesting and oh so vital principle. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, wrote to them about a matter of sowing and reaping. And in particular, Paul said, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We remember that in the early part of the book of Genesis, God set forth that principle in matters physical. Namely, a seed that's planted will bring forth identically that which was of the character of the seed. We notice in this text, Paul says the same principle applies spiritually. Again, a person who sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap what? Corruption. But on the other hand, those who vitally and critically sow to the Spirit shall of that Spirit reap life everlasting. Isn't it an amazing thing then to consider Paul's application of that in the spiritual realm? What is the seed? Jesus said in Luke 8 verse 11, The seed of the kingdom is the word of God. What was that, Lord? The seed of the kingdom is the word of God. And thus we recognize today then that that which was born of the seed is none other than Christians, the church, the only one recognized in the New Testament. When that word is planted, it shall bring forth identically of the same idea, the same character that the seed is. But the seed's the word of God. We thus recognize that that church, the one approved in heaven, has this as its guide. It has the Holy Word of God and it alone as its creed, if you will. We notice then that the church is not one among a class of many. It stands alone as the one undenominational in nature that follows the Word, the seed by which it came into being. To recognize that very principle is to help us see then that as we noted this morning and as we noted last Lord's Day evening, among that list of characteristics that must describe the body of Christ, the church approved by Christ, it must in fact follow that doctrine that is the word of truth, that doctrine that is the one revealed in heaven, that blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. Was it not Paul who wrote to the brethren in Rome and said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Notice, faith. What, Paul? Faith is that which is described in the gospel, and it is that which the gospel produces. In Romans 10:17, to those same brethren... We notice on that occasion he said, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, by the word of truth. The very notion and the very character. Then as we contrast denominationalism to the elements of truth as we've seen them described to this point, lead us to say this. We noted a moment ago that every single denomination is no older than 500 years. Notice that as those sprang up and began in the Reformation movement and some later, we can see that their initial thrust and idea may well have been noble. Men who desired to turn men's attention back to various elements of truth. But nonetheless, there are some things we must ask. Given that denominate means to call or to name, here we have situations where groups of people denominate or call themselves after a man. 
or they call or name themselves after a specified principle or after a particular activity or after a particular type of government. As one chooses to name himself in that way, notice what has been done. Where is the authority for doing so? Christ said that his church and his particular group of believers, those that are the church recognized in heaven, are those that are not recognized in that way. There is but one faith. There is but one recognized seed. You and I see then that when men choose to name themselves after some principle of men, or after some human leader, no matter how noble his intent was, they have erred. They have drifted aside from the truth revealed in heaven. It is an interesting and also powerful conclusion to know that how many have chosen to do that in our day. And thus, having sprung up in these last 500 years, it has become exceedingly more difficult for anyone to conceive of Christianity not in that vein. And thus, when you and I say, I'm not a member of any denomination, no wonder there's such confusion. They don't understand. The church never was a denomination. It never was one member of a class of a whole group of others that were equal to it. It is absolutely unique. Isn't it fascinating to think about that word unique? U-N-I-Q-U-E. You and I sometimes employ that word with respect to something when there may be truly only a few of them. Maybe a certain baseball card is unique because there's only 25 or 50 known to exist. But have you ever thought, stopped to think about if there's only one of something, it is absolutely as unique as possible. There is no other like it. And yet there is one body. There's only one church. It's not as though there's even two. There is literally one. To say these ideas perhaps direct us into the following idea. Is it not then fair to say that any particular group that utilizes as its doctrine an admixture of the Bible plus anything else is thus denominational in its character? For it has chosen to utilize the ideas of men, the principles in the mind of man, the various thoughts about human government to direct its way. Maybe as we reach to the next point in our lesson this evening, let us look at some of those other texts in the New Testament that serve as a dramatic challenge to so many, and especially to this idea of denominationalism. The text that I principally have in mind is a very short two-word idea in Ephesians 4, verse 5. No doubt as you and I have read this, pondered it, thought about it, and even used it in our own idea, Paul, writing to those brethren in Ephesus, said, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling. And notice with me verse 5, if you would. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And if we simply stop at that point, we have arrived at a situation where of at least many of them are never questioned. What sense does it make for that person with whom you've been speaking to ask, well, how many lords are there? Well, that answer is obvious, isn't it? All of Christianity surely recognizes Jesus as the only Lord. How much sense does it make to ask how many Holy Spirits are there? Isn't it obvious there's only one? 
Jesus referred to him in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, and in every case, he used a singular masculine pronoun, either him or he. There aren't many Holy Spirits. In verse 6 of Ephesians 4, he went on to say, There's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul, how many gods are there? Well, again, it's obvious there's only one. However, we arrive at a difficulty in the mind of men when we come to that middle one mentioned in verse 5. How many face Paul? Paul said there's one. But men don't think so. Men think that there's a large classification of faiths and men can choose which one they like best. Do you like this faith best or that one best? Maybe your preference is a different one, but they're all equal in the mind of men. But are they equal in the mind of God? There is one faith, Paul said. We've already noted earlier that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God, Luke 8, 11. And thus, in recognition, there's but one seed, and it is the word of God. It's no wonder then that Jesus and those other inspired writers were so great in their defense of the truth. In Philippians chapter 1, when the gospel was being battered on every hand, Paul was able to say, thank, giving thanks unto God for the fact that the gospel was preached. But he went on to say, I am set for the defense of the gospel. If it didn't matter, if there were many and they were all equal in God's sight, what was the point of defending the, the one true one? Clearly there was no point in such. But Paul was ready, even if it cost him his life, to defend the truth of God. On that road to Damascus, we will remember that this person who at that time was known as Saul, he had in his possession letters that gave him permission to imprison and even strenuously persecute Christians. And yet on that road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him. In that great bright light in which we remember that his response was, he fell on his face and acknowledged, Lord, who art thou? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. In the verses that follow, we notice in verse number 6 of Acts 9, this is what transpired. Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He acknowledged this one as Lord. Paul knew immediately he'd been wrong all his life. He didn't think that the gospel was true. He wasn't prepared to accept Jesus, but on that road to Damascus, he called him Lord. And from that point onward, he gave the every ounce of strength in his life to the defense of that gospel. You and I can see then that Paul didn't believe the church was a denomination. He didn't think that there was one among many. To the Corinthians, he said in 2 Corinthians 8, What I have preached to you, I preach to the churches in Macedonia. It's not that there are many faiths, many doctrines, many concepts. There's one faith. Today, you and I can see the confusion that arises. When those ask us, are you a Christian? We say yes. When they say, what denomination do you belong to? We say, we don't belong to one. They just can't understand. All their life, they have grown up, or at least come to accept fully, this notion of you pick the one you like best. It doesn't matter which one. Our Savior shed His blood for one body. And members in that one are the only ones saved. The world may not appreciate that message. In fact, it may fall upon ears that in fact oppose it vehemently. But it doesn't change what the Scriptures have taught. You and I have characteristics at our disposal that we can study and learn and we can find that body. 
We can identify it. We can locate it. We can be a part of it. We can worship with it. And we can rejoice all, the, all along that way. The very thought then that the church is an undenominational body perhaps leads us to a text that is also one that is worthy of our consideration. As deeply as we've discussed so far, consider yet another with me. In the second to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Jude, notice with me verse number 3 of that, of that noble book, of that noble chapter. Jude verse 3. We remember that this one chapter book was, a, was written in order to stay the course for various individuals and churches to the area of whom Jude was writing. And this he said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you, exhorting you that ye contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered unto the saints. That particular rendering is one that's rather familiar to us by virtue of its presence in the King James Version. However, there's one element of the Greek text that seems to me to be better presented in either the American Standard or in the English Standard. And in fact, this is literally the rendering of the Greek, and I have taken the liberty of placing it on the wall to my left. And notice with me how it reads, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all time, once for all delivered to the saints. I have made some remarks or things that would seem worthy of our consideration. Below that, consider the following thoughts with me. What about the word necessary? What did Jude mean when he said it's necessary that I write unto you, exhorting you, appealing to you? Doesn't the word necessary, and that is there in the Greek, suggest, in fact, directly lead us to say it is an absolutely important and vital matter. This is not optional. In fact, comparing the first, verse, first portion of that verse to the latter portion, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, Jude's initial intent was to write to these brethren about the powerful nature of the common salvation they enjoyed. But once he reflected, being led by the Holy Spirit, upon the character of what these brethren were facing, he said, it was necessary that I write to you urging you to contend for the salvation once for all time delivered to the saints. That faith once for all time delivered. It's as though Jude changed his mind by direction of the Spirit. No longer did he necessarily write the letter consisting entirely of an urging for the common salvation. Rather, he found it needful to exhort them regarding one faith that was once for all time delivered. But notice another point. In addition to being necessary, isn't it also true he used the word appealing? Again, that word we would see helps us appreciate this strong appeal that relates to Jude's exhortation. He urged them. He beseeched them. In other words, the dire matter that related to this one faith was not something that they could compromise. It's not something you could take or leave. But notice yet another element. In addition to those, to contend. What does that word mean? I have defined that using a lexicon of the Greek, those who were scholars in that array. 
And the word means to struggle or to make strenuous effort in behalf of. These brethren to whom Jude wrote, they were to struggle to provide diligent effort in behalf of the faith. We certainly are gaining the impression that when Jude wrote this, he was admonishing them to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with error and never compromise the blessed gospel, the only truth of God. As such, they were to contend earnestly for the faith. But maybe that leads us to the last consideration of the group. What about that faith? Well, notice that faith recognizes that system of faith delivered, of course, by God through Christ and the apostles. And if I would, let me draw attention to you, to the, to the writer's usage of the word thee. He said, the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. If you and I use a definite article, thee, to refer to something, then how many are under consideration? He didn't say a faith. He said, the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. There will never be another deliverance. He said it was delivered one time, never again. That's the part of the Greek text that is a bit missing in the King James rendering, isn't it? It's not that it was just delivered once. It was delivered once for all time. Isn't that a wonderful passage? When Jude wrote to those brethren, admonishing them to contend earnestly for that one faith that had previously been delivered. And doesn't that lead us to easily conclude that this word that you and I have in possession is absolutely complete. For if it was once for all time delivered, there will never need to be an additional point added. There will never need to be an appendix because it becomes outdated. There will never need to be a later appendix because something has changed. It was once for all time delivered to the saints. That thought alone should be of great comfort to you and me. For could we not say, as Peter did in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, that all things pertaining to life and godliness have been delivered. Nothing is absent. Nothing's been omitted. Nothing is not there. We're beginning to then draw all of this together to see the following. The church then, the one that's approved in heaven, undenominational in character, absolutely, but the reason for that is because it does not follow an admixture of the Bible plus anything. It follows the Bible and that alone. It follows the Word of God, the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. Perhaps to say all that draws us to the very last scripture reference of the lesson tonight. It is the very one that Lucas read for us earlier. In Acts 24, verse 14, on that occasion, Paul stood in defense before Tertullus and some others who, in fact, were listening earnestly to the things Paul had to say. During the course of that discussion, Paul made observation that the very way, the heresy that they thought Paul followed, he didn't follow at all. Did you notice? Paul questioned what they said. Paul wasn't a member of any sect. And by the way, that word heresy is more correctly rendered in the American Standard sect. Paul said, I'm not a member of any sect. You and I today, as members of the body of Christ, are not members of any sect. 
We're not members of any denomination. We're members of the church of Christ. The one purchased and bought by Him. The one that He stands ready to save on that day of judgment. Ephesians 5.23 The one that's the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 The one that is the ecclesia of God. Referenced in Matthew 16.18 These things are also challenging but at the same time so comforting to those who have grounded their life upon thus saith the Lord to those who are prepared to defend that gospel at all costs because of the things it contains. Thus the personal question then, what about you and me tonight as we summarize and close our lesson? As we have learned these points, is the church a denomination? It is not. The very definition precludes it. It is not one among many. It stands alone as the church of God. The churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, 16. And so we today, when we do today what they did in the first century, we will become a part of the church, no denomination, just the church like they did. Have you responded to the gospel to this point in your life? Have you allowed the blood of Jesus to wash your sins away and in consequence of that, Him to add you to His church? He doesn't add to denominations. He adds to the church. If you believed and repented, if you confessed Jesus' sweet name as your Savior, if you were immersed in water for the forgiveness and remission of sins, then in fact you became a member of the church. But it was no denomination. Have you remained faithful and true to that calling? If you have, then today you know how blessed you are. We each appreciate how grandly God has favored us. If you have never done that, tonight would be the night. The baptismal waters behind me are ready. Brethren are more than excited to rejoice on your behalf. But if you have done that, but have not been true to that calling in God, you haven't, you've brought reproach perhaps upon the church by the way that you've lived, the things that you've done, things that you've said or places you've gone, realize that while there's still breath within your lungs and a disposition of mind, you could be forgiven of that. This evening, if any of that is the need of your life, Brother Terry has chosen this hymn of invitation. Even though the Lord's call is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never a time that you can't pick up a phone and call one of the brethren or myself for counsel or for aid, for assistance in obedience. Now is a convenient time. Now is an opportune time. And if we could assist you, let us not delay, but do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.